Let's turn in, in God's Word to the book of First John. Today we're going to finish the third chapter uh, in a message that I have entitled, uh, What Love Looks Like, verses 16 through 24 of the third chapter of First John. And so let's pray, shall we? Father, we just thank you just for your goodness, your graciousness, Father. We thank you, Lord, for your faithfulness. And we pray, Lord, today that you would take and turn our attention to your word in this time and that we would have ears to hear you. Uh, Father, that we would, as always, have a heart and a desire to respond appropriately to you, God. And we pray anyone here doesn't know you, they come to know you. And we just thank you that faith comes by hearing and by the hearing of your word. And so we say, have your way here today in Jesus' name. What do we say? Amen. Amen. Well, listen, uh, sometimes to understand what something is, we need to understand exactly what it isn't. And John has been speaking to us of this non-negotiable, absolutely essential element of love uh, for the body of Christ that will be intrinsically, once they've been born again, you see, within the child of God. In fact, he went as far as to say that love for the brethren was one way that we could detect or uh, one way that we could discern a child of God from, the child, uh, from a child of the devil. Now, that being said, if love is a non-negotiable, essential imperative, though, then we better have some kind of crystal clear understanding as to exactly what love is. And just so there's no confusion on the matter, John began uh, explaining from the negative of what love is not. So let's look back at verse 11 of chapter 3, uh, where we read, um, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Notice, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, look over at verse 15. Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And so even though Cain and Abel were brothers physically, they were of completely different lineage spiritually. Cain did not love his brother. He hated his brother. And that was evident by the fact that he rose up against him. He murdered him. He lied to God about it. He tried to appear innocent and cover his guilt. Well, those aren't earmarks of love. Uh, it's not ending someone's life that bears witness uh, to love. It's laying down your own life that demonstrates love. Guys, let's remember this stylistic pattern that John has of reasoning from extremes so that his point remains clear and simple to understand. To destroy someone else's life for your own benefit uh, is no show of love. That's a show of hate. But to sacrifice your own life for the blessing or benefit of another, now we're getting somewhere. That's true love. Look at verse 16. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Now, guys, we know that chapter and verse references are not you know, inspired of God. They were just inserted for the sake of convenience and orderliness so that I don't have to go turn in your Bible about five, six, you know, way through. And let's, if you can find first John, turn a few pages. I'm starting right in here, but I can just go first John chapter three and verse 16. 
But nonetheless, I love the correlation between the Gospel of John, chapter 3 and verse 16, and 1 John, chapter 3 and verse 16. Uh, you know, in John 3, 16, 16, we have that familiar passage, don't we? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. John, writing about the love of God, what he did and why he did it. The sacrifice for others involved in it. Here in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 16, the sacrifice of Christ is called to our attention again, yet here, not only what he did for us, but the net effect that it should yield within us as well. John says, by this we know love. That is, this is how we come to understand, to perceive through experience, what love, true love, is. And I think that this would be a, a great place for us to remind ourselves that the ancient Greek language was much more expressive, much more articulate, the, the original language of the New Testament, than is the modern English language today. Uh, John is speaking here when he says, by this we know love. He's speaking of a very specific kind of love. We might call it actual, authentic, legitimate love, something foreign to man apart from the intervention and instruction of God. Now, you well know that the English language simply exercises one word, love. Now, the Greek language had at least four words to, that we express or that we interpret as love. We rely on context, right? I say, I love my wife. I say, I love tacos, uh, but, but gee whiz, both being true carry completely different definitions behind the word, at least we would hope so, yeah? Well, in the Greek language, they've got multiple words to help us understand the kind of the angle from which they are coming. They have the word eros, which, you know, speaks of this erotic or sexual love, really not love at all, but we throw that label on it. Uh, there's also storge, which speaks of a familial love, uh, that love from a parent to a child or a sibling to another sibling. There is phileo. You've heard of Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. This would be the highest expression of love that man is capable of apart from God, uh, that incredibly close brotherly deep bonding, kind of you, I, I think maybe a good example or illustration of this would be like Jonathan and, and David, you know, in the Old Testament, how they just loved one another. They were just deep friends. And this is where a lot of hurt can be brought into the equation. This is where a lot of confusion comes into play when relationships are developing between a man and a woman. Oftentimes, a man will say, oh, I love you. And what he's really saying is, I eros you. You know, he, he's just lusting over her. He's wanting something from her. She interprets his words, I phileo you. And they are on two totally different wavelengths and headed for disaster. You understand. What he's expressing isn't love at all. But she, what she has in her heart from his words is this lasting relationship that's coming into fruition. He wants nothing more than lustful gratification. 
Now, ultimately, every kind of love that man expresses apart from God is self-serving in some capacity. This relationship serves me, it benefits me, perhaps emotionally, could be physically. You know, I scratch your back, you scratch mine. There's, There's something in it for me. But true love, the kind of love that God expresses, is called agape. And it conveys itself not in being kind to you in order to extract something from you. It simply serves you, gives to you, sacrifices for you, demanding absolutely nothing in return from you. Not because it has to, because it wants to. It's simply love for you. It doesn't want anything from you. And it's a love so great that it continues to love through wounds, it loves through hurt, it loves though it's rejected or unappreciated, it does not limit itself to the lovely, Uh, it loves even the unlovable, the unappealing, and it's by this, John says, that we know love because he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us. In other words, he did something for you, but in return he gets nothing from you. It does not benefit him. It is all completely, entirely just for you, you see. Paul said it like this. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for, you see, the ungodly, the unlovable, the unregenerate for you and for me. He died for us. Jesus was not a martyr. He willingly, out of love for you and me, laid down his life. He said, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. But it's through his sacrifice for us, gaining nothing in return from us, that we come to know, that is to perceive to experience love. And ladies and gentlemen, you just can't learn God's love anywhere else. People sometimes think they're going to get out, going to commune with nature, going to learn about God. And truth be told, you can learn quite a bit about God from creation. Surely creation testifies to the vast power, the creativity of God, the immeasurable wisdom, the intelligence of God. But what you won't learn from nature is anything of the love of God. God demonstrates His love for us through the cross of Jesus Christ. His sacrifice would make for your salvation. Out of his great love, he laid down his life for you and for me. Now, skin for skin. This is is Satan's evaluation of man. It is the natural order. He said, skin for skin. The book of Job, you will find it. All that a man has will he give for his life. What does that mean? It means self-preservation is the natural order of life. 
You will do whatever you need to do to protect yourself, to save your life. You put a gun in my face, I'll give you my wallet, I'll give you my keys. It doesn't matter to me. Nothing's as important, you see, as my life. It's the natural order of things. Self-sacrifice is the supernatural order of spiritual life. And John is here basically reiterating what Jesus had taught him. Read through the Gospels. You will discover it was quite common for Jesus to call his disciples' attention to the example that he was giving to them. And how he didn't come to be served, but to serve. Uh, How he came to give his life away, a ransom for many. And he would serve them, and he would lower himself to lift them, and he would say things to them like, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. And that's what John is reminding us of here. Verse 11 and 12, chapter 3, right? Cain is not an example of love. Verse 16, Christ is the example of love. You see, true love is not simply a matter of not doing evil to others. It involves actually doing them good. As we read in Isaiah chapter 1, put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good. So it's not just not harming someone that demonstrates love, it's helping someone. You see, it's not just a passive thing, it is an active thing. And that's what John is focusing on here. Love isn't found in simply the absence of evil, but the presence of good, laying down our lives for the brethren. And don't be confused here and think that John is calling you to the ultimate sacrifice, dying for others, you know, uh, the sake of someone else in the body of Christ and all. Now listen, should it come to that, then certainly that would be a great, it would be a grand, it would be an incredible gesture, a heroic gesture of love. But in the grand scope of things, ladies and gentlemen, that's a rare calling. To understand this more accurately, John is saying, and we also ought to lay our lives, here's the word, aside for the brethren. We might even think of it like this. We ought to die to self for the sake of the brethren. Does this make sense? Are you with me? Okay. Now look at verse 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? Verse 18. My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. So John moves us. From the principle, yes, to the practical. Did you see that? From the exhortation, we ought to lay our lives down for the brethren to the illustration, to the application. He moves from the brethren in general to the brother in particular. You see that? He says, if you have this world's goods, you have the resources and wealth of this world, doesn't mean you're rich, though you may be, 
But you know, you get by and you see a brother in need. Now, I want to elaborate on this for just a minute because John seems to be saying something very specific here. I want to do my best to be true to it. He says, here you are, okay, as a child of God, and you got plenty. I mean, your bills are paid. You got some extra in the bank. You're doing fine. And you observe a brother in need. Now, the idea behind this word sees, he sees his brother in need there in verse 17, is to see continually or to consider regularly. This is not someone on a street corner that you just kind of happen by one day, and there they are, they're holding a sign. John is not addressing that situation here. This is someone who is on your mind, like constantly. This, this is someone that you see regularly. You know that they have legitimate needs. They're struggling, you see. It's not that they're seeking a handout, but they'd surely be blessed by a hand up. Uh, no one's trying to sponge off of you, but they're on your mind. You're observing this. You're seeing them struggle. Maybe they lost their job. Maybe they just had a bunch of unexpected expenses pop up. Maybe their family is large and their pay is small. What finds them there is not what's in view, okay? What's in view is that you're aware of it. You're in a place to do something about it, and you're just kind of watching them. This is the kind of thing John is referencing. He says, you're watching this, personal, this person struggle. You know they have a need. You see the need. You think about the need. You have the means to do something to help with the need, but you snap shut your heart against it. Now you're helping them. And, and guys, we got to keep calm. He's not saying you're helping them. You know, it wouldn't contribute to the problem. He's not talking about enabling someone to live sinfully or lazily or what. You know, he's not talking about any of that, okay? You wouldn't enable them to continue in the wrong direction. You're just turning a blind eye to a need that's been revealed to you because of selfishness, perhaps greed has its root in you. And John says, how then can you say that the love of God abides in you. Here's the point. Love isn't emotional. It's not ethereal. Though there's nothing wrong with having feelings for someone, that's fine and well. Love expresses itself in action, in self-sacrifice, in service for the benefit, for the blessing of another. James said it this way. He said, if a brother or a sister is naked and destitute of daily food, this is his illustration, this is his application, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warm and be filled, but you don't give them the things which are needed for the body, then what, what good is it, he says? It's the same type scenario. You know they're hurting, they have a need. Well, let me pray for you, brother. You have the means to help, but you don't do a thing. How does that really help? How has that really demonstrated the love of God at all? True love, if it sees a need, right? God reveals the need. It will meet the need if it's at all able to. Allow me to say it in a sentence. 
If God has entrusted you with this world's means, then take care to use them for the cause of Christ. That's what he's saying. If God's entrusted you with the means of this world, then take care to use them for the cause of Christ. Perhaps there's nothing you can do financially. That's okay. But you have a a certain skill set that could help them practically. You see, maybe you're a construction guy or a, a handyman or a mechanic or you know, whatever, fill in the blank. You, you have a skill that could aid them. The point is that love goes to work. Love gets into action. It does something for someone else. And John lays it on the line. If we're children of God, then we're going to reflect this reality. Now, it's one reason that we encourage you even to be involved and serve in your church. I'm just going to be honest. Be a part of building up, encouraging, edifying one another. Listen to me. Needs walk into your church, whether it's this church, another church, doesn't matter. Needs walk into your church every week. The need to be loved. People are hurting. The need to be taught. The need to be encouraged. The need to be strengthened. And Jesus said, what we do even to the least of these, my brethren, you see. What you do unto the least of these, my brethren. You do unto me. We serve the Lord through serving His people. And the one who lends to the Lord, right? The Proverbs, he who lends to the poor, or gives to the poor, lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay. God will not be a debtor to us. And I'm not saying that serving at church is the ultimate fulfillment of this or anything else. It's just one avenue through which we can meet needs for and be an encouragement to one another. Because the bottom line here, guys, is that John isn't going to let us get away with loving one another verbally, expressing these mushy feelings, my, how we love the body of Christ, you know, and all of that. He's going to put us in check and demand that our lives demonstrate that statement practically. He's saying, there will be a compassion in you. Listen to me. There will be a compassion in you that demands action from you. It's what's expressed in this word heart in verse 17. He shuts up his his heart. It's the same root translated compassion in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 36 where we, you know, read that or that we where we read that Jesus upon seeing the needs of the multitude was moved with compassion. And he ministered to them. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd, weary and scattered. And his compassion stirred him to action. He just couldn't not do anything, right? And that's what this word heart means. If you have a heart, the love of God is in your heart. There will be a compassion that will stir you to action when you see these needs in people. You just can't not do something, you see. And it's not, again, that warm words and comforting kindness isn't important. But when we can, warm words should be accompanied by warm actions, should the situation call for it. You understand? Okay. Verse 19. And by this we know that we are of the truth, And shall assure our hearts before Him. 
For if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Uh, Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. So when practical acts of love are spilling out from you, you can be confident, you can be assured that the truth is at work in you, that you are of the truth. When our lives are manifesting works of love, that will bring a settled assurance to our hearts. Now, John has already made it clear back in chapter 2 that it's quite possible to be ashamed when Christ appears. But it doesn't have to be that way. You can be assured. But that's not going to happen apart from obedience to the Word of God, submission to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in your life. Guys, it kind of goes back to that old illustration. It's a familiar illustration. I'm sure you've heard it in times past. And that is, if someone placed you on trial for being a Christian, could they provide enough evidence to prove it? In what way does your life testify to the reality of Jesus Christ in you? How is that love at work uh, in you and on display through you, you see? Now, we've got to acknowledge something here, and that is this. It is possible to be right with God and yet overly critical of yourself. We we have to see that. We also have an enemy who stands before God accusing us day and night, seeking to heap condemnation upon us. And John says, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. You know, there you are. This was one of those anchor verses for me for several of the early years of my Christian experience. Just always wrestling with condemnation, never feeling like I was measuring up, always questioning if I was really a Christian. You know, all of these things. And John says, if our heart condemns us, you know, there you are. You're being obedient to God's word. You love Jesus Christ. You're seeking to walk with sensitivity toward his spirit, but you just never feel like you measure up. You're always falling short of the standards you set for yourself. And you just feel guilty all the time. And John says, listen, God is greater than your heart. And He knows those who are His and your relationship with Him. It's not predicated upon your feelings. It's by faith in Him and the promise of His Word. Listen, your heart, right, Jeremiah, your heart is deceitful. And it is completely capable of rendering a wrong verdict. There is a higher court than your heart for which we thank God. Amen. When you're feeling the heavy weight of condemnation, yet there's no apparent sin that God is convicting you of, you're rendering faithful obedience to His Word, His ways. In those times, listen to me, don't succumb to your feelings. We stand by faith in Him and the promise of His Word. It doesn't matter how I feel. What does God's Word say, you see? And if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence toward God. Now, this is where we want to be. Not wavering in our faith, not listening to the lies of the wicked one or being pulled down by our own past. You are a new creation. Old things have passed away. Keep confidence toward God. As Paul told Timothy, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. You have placed your faith in the one true living God for whom nothing will be impossible. He has made a way for you where there was no way. He paid a debt 
that he didn't know because you owed the debt you couldn't pay. He demonstrated his love for you and giving his life for you. You have committed your heart, your life, your eternal soul to him, and he is able, you see, more than able to keep that which you have committed to him until that day. Keep confidence in Jesus Christ. Now, look at verse 22. And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. Okay. Guys, there is context here. We've got to be careful to, to remain in it. John is not saying that obedience enables you to write a blank check. Well, God, here's my to-do list for today. Uh, just get to work on that and get back with me this evening on things that still need attention. We'll talk about it tomorrow. But sometimes we treat prayer kind of like that. You know, God, here's my laundry list of things I need you to do. Uh, just get to work on that. Let me know when you get it worked out. But we need to remind ourselves that the purpose of prayer is not to get our will done in heaven, meaning, God, here's what I want you to do. The purpose of prayer is to get God's will done on earth. In other words, God, what would you have me to do? The one who's rendering obedience, walking in love, is drawing near to the heart of God and walking in line with the will of God for their life. Consequently, we're not going to be spilling every carnal desire that we have before God, asking Him to fulfill our wish list like He's some sort of personal genie that we have. Now, is it wrong to let your requests be made known to God? No, the, the Bible encourages us, exhorts us to do this. But guys, the heart of prayer, remember, even from the life of our own Lord, is not my will be done. It's nevertheless not my will, but thy will be done. Yes, God honors obedience, but the obedient disciple is the one. You remember what Jesus called the prerequisite for being a disciple? If anyone would be my disciple, would come after me. What was the very first thing on the list? Let him... Come on, somebody, deny himself. Oop, there it is. Take up his cross, the instrument of death to self, death to the self-will. We talk about this on occasion. You, I guarantee you in ancient Rome, you've seen someone carrying a cross. They were not about their own will. They were about the will of another. So he says, you've got to deny yourself. Let me underscore that. Take up your cross. And follow me. We want to be in that place where God grants us the desire of our heart. As the psalmist said, in other words, He places a desire in us. And we're in line with that. He gives to us that desire that He has for us. Paul put it like this, For it is God who works in you both to will, to give you that desire, and to do for His good pleasure. God is working in you, seeking to communicate his heart to you. Do, you. do you understand what he's saying here? The psalmist said it this way, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. God will insert them. He will implant his heart in you. One more from the lips of our Lord. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire. It will be done for you. You see, there is, 
There's context involved. There, there's prerequisites. There's conditions to be met. Is his word at work in me? Am I yielded to him in obedience, you see? Is my heart to please him or to please myself? My prayer life is connected to and impacted by all these things. Now, in verse 23, we'll read through the end of our section here. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. Now, he who keeps his commandments abides in him and he in him. And by this, we know that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. So with the reference to keeping his commandments there in verse what, 22, John seems to hone in on one specific commandment that serves, let's say, as his foundation for what he's talking about, but he parses it out in two ways. Did you notice that? Essentially, he looks at it as two sides to the same coin. They ultimately serve the same point. He says, This is God's commandment, singular, right? That we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the first part. So the idea here, guys, this is His commandment. That we should believe on the name of His Son, Jesus Christ. This is not a mental assent. Uh, I believe a man named Jesus walked the earth, was a historical figure and all of that. It speaks of placing all your weight in, committing yourself to, being confident in Him to be your salvation. To believe in His name, the word name doesn't speak of a title, but of all that a person represents. You place your absolute confidence in the fact that Jesus Christ is the sinless Son of God, all-powerful, all-knowing, the spotless Lamb of God who shed His blood, not only for mankind generally, but for you personally. He died, He was buried, He was raised from the dead three days later that you might stand justified before God by faith in Him. He ascended on high to the right hand of God where He lives ever to make intercession for you and you place the confidence of your eternal salvation in the fact that He is every bit of who He said He was, God. God come in the flesh to seek and to save that which was lost. You believe on his name. You see that? Now, and uh, whoever's closing. And that's what he says. So, so part number one, right? And this is his commandment, that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. So that to believe on His name is to love one another. And this isn't unlike the words of Jesus when the lawyer came to Him. You remember that on that day? 
And the lawyer comes to him and he asks of him and he says, teacher, which is the great commandment of the law? You know, if, I mean, if you just had to take it and, and, and summarize it, and if there was only one, one thing that could really be the main thing, what would it be? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And then he said, look what he says. He says, and the second is like it. Right? It's right there on par with it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. A lot of people think they have to learn to love themselves. The Bible says that's the problem, is that we all love ourselves at the expense of others. If we would love others like we love ourselves, if we would take care of them like we try to take care of ourselves, there would be so much, all our problems, our worries would be over. But there are two commandments. Is your, is your guitar not on? Someone turn her guitar on, please. Oh, there it is. There are two commandments, but they're essentially one. Does this make sense? To love God is to love others. Sometimes we say, like, this is how it manifests. This is how it evidences itself. If, what's the evidence of my love for God? Well, it, the evidence is in how I love others, you see. And this obedience is the evidence, John says, of abiding in Him and Him abiding in you. And he says the Holy Spirit bears witness to that. And we'll, we'll talk on that next time. For now, let's bow our hearts and just prepare our hearts today for the table. Father, we thank You for Your love and how You demonstrated Your love and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And I pray that you would help us, you would teach us to walk in love and to serve one another. And that we would render obedience from the heart. And that we would have a sensitivity to the prompting of your spirit. And I pray, Lord, that uh, your will be done in and through our lives. Not our will, Lord, your will be done. That you would be glorified in us. That you would shed your grace upon us and strengthen us, O oh God, to do your will.